Well, listen, if you don't have a Bible out yet, I would invite you to do that. Uh, Some of you are already trained and you know to do this. We open our Bibles here at Neighborhood Bible Church. This is a good time to have it open and, uh, and see the words for yourself, whether that's on an app, on a different tab, or on a physical Bible. Uh, also, there's sermon notes beneath the video feed. Uh, click on that. Um, it's helpful for me to be engaged in writing down and taking notes, writing my questions, writing my observations, uh, and just following along. It helps me stay engaged. Um, you know, the, one of the big messages this morning is this, that there is more to the story going on than, than we see on the surface. And so even just as a team, we, we just walked through the script of this morning, all the different things happening. And, and just like with that, we said, look, all these elements that are there, uh, there's something far deeper and far bigger going on. Every time we open God's word, when we worship in song, when we worship in, in studying the scriptures, in submitting to the teaching of the scripture, there is something more going on to it. So I want to invite you right now to take a moment. Maybe you haven't done this yet. Maybe it's been a scramble getting to, uh, to sit in front of a screen um, and, and participate in church this morning. But take a deep breath and recognize that as we open God's word, uh, these are the eternal words of God that we're going to look at and read. And just, just invite God's presence into your life. Invite God's leadership into your life. Invite God's wisdom and instruction and warning and comfort into your life right now in this moment. It's not just another Sunday. This is a day unlike any other. And so let's, let's give ourselves to this hour. So failing to plan is blank. Some of you immediately said failing to plan is planning to fail. Congratulations, you are called a planner. Planners, you like deadlines and checklists. You love short and long-term goals. Structure, calendars, and schedules get you weirdly excited. A plan is meant to be carefully crafted and then carried out and stuck to. That's what planners think. Now, the opposite of planner, no, planners. The opposite of planner is not disorganized, lazy, or anarchist. That's what you may think sometimes. The opposite of a planner is someone who is spontaneous. Now, if you're spontaneous, here's how you answered this. You said that planning to, or failing to plan is called living, right? For you, that's just life. Now, it's a good chance that if you're not married yet, you spontaneous people will get married to planners. And if you are married, it's a good chance that you spontaneous people are married to planners. And this makes for what we call a spicy marriage, right? There's a lot of good um, uh, conflict in there that's, that's good to grow from and learn from. There's also a lot of good coverage in there that you can, you can offset each other and, and really it spices things up to have this happen. Spontaneous people, you enjoy exploring possibilities, sometimes all of them. Uh, you enjoy seeing how things go. Uh, and timetables, your timetables are made of Play-Doh, as in super flexible, super moldable, nothing like set and, and, and firm. 
Um, what some call procrastination, you spontaneous people call inspiration, which then leads to innovation, which causes you to celebration, right? This is how you go. When someone says that you're flying by the seat of your pants, you take that as a massive compliment. In fact, in the back of your mind, you think that's actually an adventure I'd like to actually try someday is to fly by the seat of my pants. Now, what is the life verse of a planner? Here it is. It's Psalm 20, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire, listen to this, and fulfill all your plans. And all the planners said, amen. And how about the life verse of the spontaneous? Here it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The spontaneous amongst us say, sweet, God is doing all the planning. I don't need to do any of that stuff. God's doing it. He's got it handled. And look at all the great stuff he has planned for me. Now, you're sitting here, some of you going, but which one is right? Here's the answer. Ready? Yes. They're both right. In God's economy, in God's incredible design, we actually see the character, nature, and working of God when all of the different personality types Gifts and weaknesses come together to form a cohesive picture. Now, my mom, she is a great planner. And she tried really, really hard uh, and really, really often to make me one as well. Uh, She succeeded in a lot of things, but she failed at that, to, to make me the kind of planner she was. A favorite phrase of my mom's for me is this. She says, you just live right. And whenever my mom said, you just live right, that was code for, man, you didn't do any of the hard work ahead of time. You didn't plan. You didn't do the timetables like I taught you or like I would have done. And things just seemed to work out. Um, And and now as as I look back on this, as I think about it, I have chapter and verse, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. I didn't even know that principle was at work in my life, but that's what was going on. Here's the title this morning. The title is Best Laid Plan. And we're going to look at the life of Judas and and Jesus in these two short little passages next to each other, and we're going to watch how they are are plotting their course and how they, they sort of sit side by side and they also intersect together. We're going to look at two plans at work as Luke is moving the story along. We've been teaching daily in the temple. That's where Jesus has been. It's been for a couple of chapters. We've been let in on Jesus's final sermon series. He's teaching in the temple daily. It hasn't been nice, polite Sunday school. It's actually been very confrontational. It's been very insightful. He's speaking apocalyptic things that are in the near future, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and in the long-term future when he returns, which hasn't happened yet. So we're going to look at a plan of destruction and betrayal, and we're going to look at the plan of salvation and love. And, and they're sitting side by side in Scripture. It's really powerful. It's the, the plan of man and the plan of God. I don't know if you figured this out yet. It takes a lot of us a really long time and a lesson we have to learn over and over again. But here it is. Try as we might, our best laid plan never trumps God's plan. God's plans are not to be thwarted. Every time... Whatever we plan is going to eventually yield to God's plans. Now, oftentimes, those begin to merge and intersect. Whether you're in the planner hall of fame or whether you're the president of the spontaneous club, uh, let me ask you this question. How is 2020 going for you? 
Um, 2020 has brought so many different funny things. Uh, one of them is just like tons of memes, but um, plans have been disrupted. Trips have been canceled. Expectations have been forced to rearrange into something we call reality, right? And everyone's life has changed. You probably started out this year like every other year before it. And you thought in your mind, sure, there's going to be some surprises, but I am fairly certain about many, many things. No more. We've all been humbled. We've all been reminded of just how much we are not in control of things. You know, the Word of God is living and active. I've been saying this to whoever will listen, and so my family's probably sick of it, but I am so amazed, I'm, I'm re-amazed in this season of life. The Bible is called living and active, that, that it's alive and it's moving. And, and I don't know about you, but over and over and over again, I am reading things that I've read in different seasons of life many times. I may have even taught on them, but they are popping off the page right now. They are alive and active. They are speaking into my daily existence. Here's one of them. James chapter 4, verse 13. It says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, whenever you sneeze, and think about sneezing for a minute, whenever you sneezed in public before, that brought God's blessing on you from from disciples of Jesus and non-disciples. And now if you sneeze in public, what does it bring? Death stares, right? Public shame. Like, how could you? Um, I don't know about my mask. For some reason, when I put my mask on, I don't cough or sneeze at all until I put my mask on. And then I just find this tickle going on, and it's this funny, weird mental game. Like, I don't want to get, you know, arrested on site for sneezing. So I try to hold back a sneeze, which is kind of difficult. Every time you sneeze, remember, there is a, a little short mist that's there, and then it falls to the ground and, and dissipates. Every time you sneeze, every time you hear someone sneeze, by the way, continue to pour out God's blessing on them. They're going to need it whenever they sneeze in public. A sneeze is a picture of our life. It's a mist. Here today, gone in a few moments of time. And so it's a, it's a good reminder for us that what we're doing right here and what we're doing right now, this hour is vital and it's important. 2020 is a massive wake-up call for, for, for true Christians. And what I mean by that is it's not just those who name it uh, because they're American or name it because that's what they, they do. But I'm talking about real followers of Jesus Christ that 2020 is a massive wake-up call. Uh, we are on high alert because we realize that God has entrusted us in this moment in history to bear witness about him, to be the carriers of the gospel, to be living out God's truth and God's reality and speaking out God's truth and God's reality in this day and age and time. It's a remarkable trust that's been given to us, and it's a remarkable opportunity that we have to live and be his body. You know, the, the, the plot in the, in the story that we find ourselves in um, has thickened, as they say. It's as thick as molasses, isn't it? It's thickening all of the time. 
We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks in different ways, but understanding the times is the call of all Christians all the time. This is not just for a few leaders in the church or thought leaders. There are some who are predisposed to always be looking ahead and thinking. It's called the gift of leadership, but it's really the, um, it's, it's on, it's a, it's a burden on every Christian at all times to be understanding the times. Um, if we are only being discipled by CNN or Fox and Friends, then we are going to view the world events and life and how to respond to them in a certain way. I pray as a Christian, you're being discipled by Jesus and the church, and that that's what you're giving your time to. Many, many people spend maybe an hour and 15 minutes each week watching this screen, their church, and then time in the Word, but, but, but are being overwhelmed and overrun by other voices Turn down the voices, hear me, of CNN and Fox and whatever other channels are out there. Dial into the voice of God. Dial into the body of believers. And it will alter the way that we are looking at things, at the way we are thinking about things, and the way that we will act both proactively and reactively to the world around us. It's called a life of faith. Christian, you're called to live a life of faith. I love how Philip Yancey describes this in a book called Disappointment with God. He says, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Jesus teaches us to have eyes of faith. To see that there's always more to the story than you or I know. In fact, friends, there is beauty and danger lurking below us right now. And we are utterly dependent on our Savior to make sense of it all. So that's our thickening plot. How about in Luke? In Luke, the plot is thickening as well. In fact, this is the moment in history that looms on the horizon. The cross is hours away at this point. And we shift from teaching daily in the temple to this this night of Passover where Jesus is going to meet with his disciples one last time. Remember that Jesus doesn't leave his followers then or now uh, totally clueless about what is happening. And he also doesn't fill in all the details. One of the things I want you to do is just use your imagination as we go through this story. Uh, Again, we have the tool of time. We get to look back in reverse and see, um, oh yeah, Jesus has it under control. Jesus knows what he's doing. But his disciples and his opponents... They lived life like we do, one step at a time, one day at a time, one hour at a time. And so the story is going to unfold for them. God is working all things together for good. Take courage that we see that in the past. We believe that in the present. Remember last chapter, in chapter 21, the word will uh, shows up some 30 times. This will happen. That will happen. Jesus is firmly in control of the future. This is the hope that we have. We've seen it played out in the past. We believe it for the future. The way we're going to do it is this. We are going to look at the people and the plans being made here. And and they're going to speak truth to us here in 2020. So first up is the plan of destruction. Okay, Two plans kind of coinciding. The plan of destruction, the plan of salvation. So the plan of destruction... 
We're going to pay attention to the story of death and destruction that is trying to be authored um, by the opponents of Jesus. This began in Luke chapter 4 where Satan um, comes out to, to, to Jesus in the wilderness. It's the temptation of Jesus um, and he begins to try and tempt him. But really it begins in Genesis 3, right? This story of destruction that Satan is authoring uh, begins at the very beginning. So it was there at the beginning. Satan slinks away having been defeated in the wilderness, and it says this, Luke leaves us hanging. It says in Luke chapter 4 that he waits for an opportune time. Well, this is the opportune time that Satan emerges back in full force. So Luke 22, verses 1 to 13. Okay, here's, here, here we go. Let me read the first six verses. This is the plan of destruction. Verse 1, now the feast of unleavened uh, bread drew near, which is also called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So they consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Last week, Ben mentioned um, Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, to just be chewing on that and thinking that every day. And, and I've been doing that this week, been pondering it uh, as I was directed uh, last week. But I want you to steer your brain now to the very next verse, verse 3, which says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Church, here's what I am hoping to do. I'm hoping to lead you into considering Jesus, who endured hostility against his opponents for this purpose. Look at the purpose clause. So that we find courage for our journey by considering, pondering, meditating, thinking, studying, chewing on the journey of Jesus. So Jesus endures mistreatment, betrayal, and he keeps his eyes on his father, obedient to the end. And in that, we find courage. Now, there's so many coincidences that happen in a Christian's life that one day they shift their thinking from coincidence to providence. And they just say, you know, God, this can't be that this just keeps showing up coincidentally. Well, coincidentally, so as a Christian, I say providentially, Psalm 140 was in a Bible reading program that I began on January 1st of 2020. And in Psalm 140, this psalm speaks loudly to the person who wrote it, which is David. The life he lived, he was betrayed and pursued by evil men. It, so so it, it, it's fitting for the life of David. It's fitting for the life of Jesus. As I'm thinking about our text this week and the cross looming, it's fitting. Psalm 140 is totally fitting for his life and... It's fitting for my life. This is the way the word of God works. Listen to just a snippet of it. Psalm 140 verse 1 says this. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me. This is the plan of destruction coming to fruition right now. 
There are plans being set up, timetables being set, and they are, they are zooming in on how do we best strategically um, get at Jesus. What is it they want? They want a silent Jesus. How do you silence Jesus? You kill him. He's been teaching throughout the countryside, and now he's brought it here to the temple, their territory. And they say, not on our watch. This stops now. It's devastating when you think about it, who it is that is being used of Satan to devise a plan of destruction. Who are these uh, people living out the words of Psalm 140 against God's chosen Messiah? These evil, arrogant, violent men who plan evil things in their hearts? It's Israel's shepherds. It's their leaders. And an intimate ally, it's one of the twelve, Judas. If you've never been betrayed, believe me, you will. And if you've been betrayed, chances are you can still taste the bitter sting in your, in your being at the drop of a hat. God can heal that. God can grow that. But betrayal is a powerful thing, isn't it? And it hurts most when it comes from those, those who are close. So when we look at who's doing the betraying, it's even worse. So here's what I'm going to do. If you're taking notes, um, we're going to just look at the characters involved and kind of what's going on with them. So we start with the, 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 the sham shepherds. I call them the sham shepherds because they're not truly shepherds. They're bad shepherds. And what we have here are both really the politicians of the day and the, the police of the day, those who will enforce the law, um, and that is the, the, the temple guards. It's Passover. It's a season of worship. What should the politicians be doing? What should the leaders, the shepherds be doing? Well, what they should be doing is preparing things for an incredible celebration. Turning the attention of the people that they are called to protect and to serve, to adore their great God. They should be looking back on the amazing things God did to save them, to pass over them, to deliver them from Egypt. And they should be looking forward to the day when Messiah would come and enter the world and establish a kingdom forever and ever. Instead, the leaders of Israel, instead of prepping a worship service, are strategizing how they can ruin Jesus. They are scheming the place and time. They're haggling over the hit price. By the way, Matthew records it for us. What was it? 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver today, about 200 bucks. Judas sold his soul for $200. You know, a title in the church doesn't guarantee purity, does it? Pastor, minister, reverend, Pharisee, Sadducee, a title in the church doesn't guarantee purity. I was in the South this week. I was in Arkansas. Never been to Arkansas before, and Rob has told me a lot about Arkansas. And while I was there, one of the, one of the women got up and gave a little um, testimony during an open mic for Rob's dad. Rob's dad was a, was a pastor down there. And down there in the South, you call pastors with a, with a deep sense of reverence. Brother so-and-so, and then you would use his last name. So I would be Brother Carlson. Well, this is Brother Collins, because Rob's last name. So this woman gets up, this older lady, and she had just the sweetest southern accent going on, and she said, you know, um, 
I've known him for 30 years, and he was a phenomenal pastor, and she, she, she shared some stories. And then she said this. She said, near the end of his life, I, I asked Brother Collins, and it was always Brother Collins this, Brother Collins that, Sister Collins, that's his wife. And he said, I asked Brother Collins, Brother Collins, can I call you J.S.? Well, J.S. was his first name. That's what he went by. And then she said this. Do you know that he said yes? He said yes, that I could call him J.S. And then I went to his wife. And I said, Sister Collins, would it be okay if I called you Stella? And she said, yes. She allowed me to do that. Now, here's what struck me as I sat there. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. Do you know how much respect pastors have in the Bay Area? Not a lot. Um, and, and that's just normal. Like, that's normal to me. So, so on the one hand, I'm looking at this going, wow, um, this woman was really moved that she felt close enough, and she said, she said, isn't it so gracious? That's the kind of people these were. They would let you call them by their first name. That's how moved she was by it. And that was, a, that was abnormal. That was extraordinary. And as I sat there, I thought about this. Boy, reverence for the title is actually something really, really lacking in my context. And that's actually a really good thing. But it also can tilt very easily towards something really wrong, right? Where all of a sudden that title and, and that esteemed position can lead people to blindly follow a, an under-shepherd instead of the chief shepherd, right? And so, um, so that's what we have going on is, 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 the, is that a title conferred on someone should be respected. It should be looked to, but it's very easy for that to tilt into getting into someone's head. These guys, these shepherds had it wrong. The arrogance led them to use their God-given power, which is given to build up the church, build up the body, serve and protect. The bigger you get in leadership in the church, in God's economy, the lower you go. The more people you serve, the more you support. These guys flipped the script, and in their arrogance, their title led them to use their power for their own good instead of for the good of others. So that's the sham shepherds. How about Judas? Judas called Iscariot. Now, this Judas was one of the 12. He had a front row seat to the glory of Jesus Christ, to the miracles, to the person, to the inner workings. Judas proves the point that close is not the same as connected, that proximity doesn't equal family. It's easy to think of him as a slimy, sneaky character, right? Uh, He's nothing like us. But that's not true. And we know this because of this. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, instead of them all going, ha, you, I knew it. I oh, You always had a sneaky little look on your face. It's Judas. They didn't all do that. What did they do? They all did this. Who, who could it be? Church, there's a lesson for this. Judas is a lot more like you and I than we care to admit. Judas is a lot more like our brothers and sisters sitting around us in church than we care to admit. Did Judas learn how to play the game? Yes. Was his heart on a different path than one of following Jesus? Yes. And as time went on, that gap grew and grew. Judas was out preaching the gospel. Remember Jesus sent them out to do ministry? He was out preaching the gospel. He was out doing ministry. Jesus sat under the best teacher the world has ever known, and Jesus bailed on his commitment. uh, Judas fell away. So here's the warning. 
You aren't in Christ because you are close to the things of Christ. Catch that. You don't abide in Him by association. You don't get in because your parents, your roommates, your friends, your church people do it for you. Both the religious leaders and Judas the betrayer tell us the same exact thing. An outside that doesn't match the inside doesn't fool of God. That doesn't fool God. And you are still under the wrath of your sin, no matter how clean you make the outside, no matter how much you conform to what looks like a growing Christian. You know, this is why fallen leaders and docile neighbors and funny favorite teachers shock us when they fall morally. It's because we begin to get impressed with things that don't impress the things of God. We see the outside and we go, good enough for me. I'm sure the inside matches. You know, Paul the Apostle wasn't that impressive. Either physical appearance nor speaking ability. The Bible makes that really clear. What was he? He was impressively available to God. And so God used him in incredible ways for service. He even appealed to his listeners not to look at the visible things that can be faked. And instead, train your eyes, train your discerning antenna to say, what what is it that can't be faked? Look at the power of God at work in and through someone, not at just the external. Look at 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Church, train yourself not to be impressed with the things that tend to impress us, but train yourselves to look for the demonstration of the Spirit of God in a person. Furthermore, we're actually told to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Not only can we, can we lavish impressive things, uh, or be, be impressed by the wrong things in others, we can be impressed by the wrong things in ourselves. We're able to fool ourselves. So in 2 Corinthians 13.5, it says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Church, this part of what we do on a Sunday morning is to be reminded of the story, to be reminded of most, most real, and to lay ourselves before God and say, God, see if there be any wicked way in me. I want to see reality. I want to take a long, loving, loving look at what actually is, not what's made up and stirred up in my mind. There's a final character in the plan of destruction, and that's Satan. Yes, Satan. Satan is real. Ignorance of him or laughing him off is, is the first and greatest um, uh, deception that he has, right? Is to just sort of whittle away to, to, to myth. And yet we know our adversary precisely because God has chosen to reveal him to us. Jesus is telling us what the rest of the Bible agrees with, and that is this, that spiritual forces are behind human behavior. Spiritual forces are behind human behavior. This plot against Jesus is more than man-made. Pure evil opposes the pure love 
of Christ. Satan has been and will continue to oppose all that is good and godly. It began in Genesis 3. It carries on through the story in Luke. We see it in the early church. In the early church, during the offering time, Peter attributes spiritual forces behind earthly behavior. Acts 5.3, but Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Remember Ananias and Sapphira coming to their church service, make a lavish offering? What was going on in their heart? They were actually holding back part of the price. Peter attributes that to they're still held responsible for their behavior. In fact, they're struck dead on the spot. Puts the fear of God in people, not to trifle with, with God. But Peter also, without, without releasing them, re- relinquishing them, their personal responsibility, he points out spiritual forces behind it. Commenting on the spiritually discerned identity of Jesus, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, the spiritually discerned identity of Jesus. Watch this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There are spiritual forces behind the man-made plans that are going on to destroy Jesus. Now catch this. Satan is alive and active for as long and as much as God allows. God's in control. Which leads some people to this question. I hope this stirs up a lot of questions for you. But here's one. How did it happen that someone so close to Jesus was filled with Satan and used as his instrument? I think that's a worthwhile question to explore. But here's what I think may be a better question and maybe more fruitful to explore. How can I keep that from happening to me? If Judas had the benefit of being there physically with Jesus and seeing all he did and he could fall away, how can I keep it from happening to me? Let me show you two things. If you're writing, if you're writing notes, these are two things to avoid. Number one is secret sin. We avoid secret sin. Judas initially opened the door of his life to Jesus. He said yes to him. He chose to follow him. And then he opened the door of his life to Satan. We don't know the intricacies of exactly when that happened, but we do know this. Judas had been helping himself, stealing from the common money uh, uh, purse, uh, money bag. And and so we, we know that he'd been helping himself to money. So that was a point of weakness for Judas. It's what got him in the end, was a price of money on Jesus' head. This is the sin of greed. And ultimately, it led to his device. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of what? All kinds of evil. Even the kind that puts a price on the head of your Savior. This unconfessed secret sin does what unconfessed secret sin does. That is, it opens the door to Satan in our soul. It gives him a foothold to stand on. So here's the instruction. Avoid cherishing sin. Repent of it, denounce it, confess it, and run to the arms of grace. Don't make deals with sin in your life. Don't coddle sin in your life. Don't rationalize sin in your life. Kill it. Repent of it. Denounce it. Know where it leads. It always leads to death and destruction. Here's number two. Although Judas walked with Jesus, he wasn't keeping in step with the Spirit. So what do you avoid? Avoid just walking with Jesus. 
Walking with Jesus is what Judas did. Keeping in step with, with the Spirit is what the Holy Spirit-infused disciple of Jesus does. There's no weapon of Satan that can thwart or overpower the Spirit of Christ which dwells in us. We are assured that God who began a good work in us will complete it. Phew! That ought to let out a big sigh for you. God's going to complete the work that He began. And the Bible holds an equal truth in tension with this. Ready? God assures that, we, that He who began a good work will complete it and that we must finish the race, that we must cling to Christ all the way and not fall away. Do you hear sort of these dual things? If you go all the way in one direction or the other, you start a cult. Recently, three men from Micronesia took off in a boat um, headed for the, the, the Pulop Atoll. This is sort of like uh, a little bit like northeast of Australia. But instead of landing there, they landed out of fuel on an island 118 miles off course. And they were stranded on this tiny island in the Pacific. Unable to save themselves, they did what they could to save themselves. They looked up, they asked for help, and they received it when it came. Church, there's a lesson here for us. They looked up, they asked for help, and they received it when it came. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, namely, save us. The physically dead can't raise themselves, can't rouse themselves back to life any more than the spiritually dead can rouse themselves to life. This is God work. That's God territory. And God won't do for us what He's called us to do for ourselves. What is that? It's to walk by faith. It's to keep in step with the Spirit. It's to abide, to rest in, to cling to the vine which is Jesus Christ. You know, life then, as now, must be viewed through the spiritual lens or else we completely miss the story. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Church, God is urgently warning us to heed the lurking danger to not wander and thus be an instrument of Satan, but instead to nurture the inner life of a real, ongoing, growing relationship with Jesus by simply staying close to Him, by keeping up, by just keeping in step with Him. Now, while the plan of destruction is being laid, schemed, planned, and paid for, at that very moment, Jesus is working out His plan of salvation. Why? Because He's just that awesome. That's why. So, This too begins in Genesis, by the way. Luke's been cluing us in all along that Jesus keeps saying, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. Well, guess what? The time has come. This is it. It's now upon us. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of of unleavened bread, 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus went to Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, uh, an upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So the plan of salvation, as we're going to see it unfold, it actually includes and incorporates this plan of destruction that is going on. So who are the characters in this story? Well, let's look at Peter and John for a moment. Peter and John have a plan. What's their plan? Do whatever this guy says. (laughs) Jesus says, go and do stuff. We're going to go and do what he says. They don't get it perfectly all the time, but they're growing, aren't they? And this is the life of a disciple. We don't get it perfect all the time. We mess up much of the time. But we're trying to just do what he says to do. Hey, go and do this. You're going to find a guy carrying water. What's spectacular about that? People carrying water is women's work. So it will be odd that a man is carrying water. When you see that guy, go up to him. That's your clue. So here's the thing I want you to circle in your Bible or write down. It says, they went. Jesus tells them, go find a guy Uh, who's carrying water and talk to him. What did they do? They went. There it is. When I say keep in step with the Spirit, when I say stay close to Jesus, I mean hear what he says and do what he says. They went. That's a remarkable thing. Remember that time passes. We read this in the blink of an eye. They had to receive the instructions, go, okay, I guess we're looking for a guy with water now as we enter the city. They have questions arising in their mind. They probably have insecurities rising in their mind. Is this all going to work out? And they found it just the way that he told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Now, I regularly tell my kids to do things. I tell them to set the table, and sometimes miracle of miracles, they ask me if they can set the table. This happened Thursday night. It's so extraordinary. I took note of it, and I'm mentioning it in a sermon. But I ask my kids to go and set the table all the time. Jesus was asking his disciples, go and set the table. You know what's honoring as a dad when my kids obey in a mundane chore? They are saying to me, we love you. And the way that I tell them to do it, I can say that in a loving way. I can say that in a really mean, cold-hearted way. We are actually communicating to one another. When I say, hey, go set the table, and they say, great, dad, we'll go do it, and they do it. What we're saying to each other in that moment is, we love you. We, we love one another. You know, it's, it's honoring as a dad when they obey the mundane chores. I think it's even more honoring when I ask them to do something that's out of context, out of routine, sort of bizarre and, and arbitrary, and they still just trust and do it. I might say to them, get to bed right now because early in the morning I want you up and I want you to dress warm. And that's all I give them. This is what I do regularly because what I love to do is surprise my kids, delight my kids, challenge my kids. And I'm trying to teach them to walk by faith. What does Jesus do? He doesn't say, hey, I've got this killer plan laid out. It starts with you guys setting the table, okay? So I want you to know the full context of why you're doing this menial chore so you can see the great glory. They're going to talk about this for centuries. He doesn't do that. He says, go set the table. That's all he gives them. Whoop, this much. Take a step of faith. And they say, we love you, Jesus. The way they do it is they go obey. They went. That's what a disciple does. All right. Last, last one in the story is Jesus. We should probably look at Jesus and learn from him. 
What is Jesus doing? What is he teaching us in this moment? Well, I thought of it this way. Jesus carries many titles, many roles at all times. Let's just think about what he's doing in this moment. Jesus as son is being obedient to his father to the very end. Jesus knows the writing is on the wall. Jesus knows this is his time. He knows what's around the corner. And he is obedient as a son. Jesus as shepherd, well, he's doing what good shepherds should be doing. He is providing for his sheep. He's caring for them. You know, Jesus is our priest. What was Jesus doing as priest? Well, as priest, he is leading his followers in the way of God. God commanded them to remember him with this Passover feast. And so they are doing it. As teacher, Jesus is getting the world's best and most remembered object lesson ready. What's the best and most remembered object lesson? It's the bread and the wine. We're still talking about it. It's still teaching us worldwide for 2,000 years. This master teacher is giving an object lesson that will stick for all time. Jesus is also a prophet. As prophet, Jesus is sending his disciples to set the table with anything but mundane circumstances surrounding it. He's already been doing this in small ways. He's been saying, hey, there's going to be a cult tied up. Tell that person you need it. It's going to happen. Jesus is in command of the present, and he's in command of the future. And because he's a true prophet of God, it's never wrong. He doesn't come back with, oops, I was off. Finally, as the good doctor, I know that's not a biblical term, but it really is a biblical concept. As good doctor, Jesus is in the final prep mode before going into the operating room where he will be the one undergoing the knife, being cut open, bleeding out, all so that we don't have to. In his blood, we find our healing and wholeness. As we head into the institution of the Lord's Supper next week, we're going to celebrate communion next Sunday. And as we do this, let this be um, a week of looking ahead with Jesus to the rich meaning and lasting impact that, that speaks to the fact that there's so much more than a dinner going on. If you just think it's the Last Supper, like they're just having dinner one last time, you're missing it. There's a whole storyline going on that you need spiritual eyes to see, and that's what we're going to look at. Let me skip ahead to just two verses that we'll look at more in depth next week, but it ties into this week. Jesus is speaking of the bread and the cup, and then in verse 21, chapter 22, 21, he says this, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, watch this, as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Both the death of Jesus and the betrayal by Judas are known and orchestrated by God, who is the author of history. In faith today, Christian, we joyfully press on, knowing that God is at work, as he always has been and always will be. We're going to sing in just a moment. Let me wrap up with these, with these thoughts. Maybe you are the one who's not only turned your back and denied Jesus, like, like, like Peter will do shortly, but you've actually betrayed Jesus. Maybe you know that you have opened the door of Satan to your soul by some secret sin. If this is you, repent, turn back, 
my voice today is warning you of sin, which always has one final destination, and that is death, destruction, shame, regret. This is what comes from living out, carrying out the desires of the flesh. The plan of salvation is set. The path is before you. Your move is to look up, ask for help, and trust it when it comes. The men on this island that I talked about, they got into an Aussie helicopter that landed and told them to get in. This required a simple act of faith. They said yes to the invitation off of their seeming little little island paradise that was actually a prison that they would die there. Jesus comes to our rescue. His invitation is for us to get into him. It requires a simple act of faith, a simple yes to the invitation being given. For all of you who've said yes already, who are in Christ, here's my word to you. Keep up. Keep in step with Jesus. Keep in step with the Spirit. Like Peter and John, just trust and obey. It says they went. Jesus spoke and they went and did it. Do the same. Live the adventure. Keep on the lookout because your Savior is always up to way more than it appears on the surface of things. Would you pray with me? God, you meet us where we are at today. Some of us are blinded by our own short-sightedness and we are living out the deeds of the flesh. God, some of us today are actively planting seeds to the flesh that will take root and will bear its wicked fruit in a different season to come. God, I pray rescue for everyone in that state. God, I pray for a wake-up call today. I pray your word would beam light in the darkness. Flood them with the truth to be able to see ahead to where that leads. God, instead, you instruct us to plant seeds to the Spirit, to not lose heart in doing good, to keep our eyes on you, to simply trust and obey. God, we thank you. It's your grace that draws us here to even want to hear your words today. It's your grace that causes our hearts to sing. Would you help us, God? Would you give us daily bread, daily grace to live out your plan for our life this week? Amen.